you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. All right, so let's get started. <clears throat> My name is Missy. Again, I'm the ministries coordinator here at the church. And for any of you who don't know, Pastor Daniel is just taking a well-deserved week off. That man deserves a break. <laughs> he brought our church back from the brink of several things. And uh, he's going he's gonna to take several naps to recover from it. <laughs> So he'll be back next week, um, but in the meantime, I get to fill in, and I just have really enjoyed this series that Pastor Daniel has been doing um, the last few weeks. He's touched on some really tricky topics, like divorce and selling your possessions <laughs> to follow Christ, and what it really means to sit in a place of honor next to the right hand of God, what that really looks like. So he's set up for what I hope will be a smooth landing in the flipped series. <laughs> I'm calling today's message, God in the Dark. So let's open our Bibles to Mark 10, and let's read our passage from the lectionary today. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All right, backing up a little bit, Mark is a really unique book. And I just want to set the stage for this story a little more. Mark, like most New Testament books, is a letter sent to early Christians, but it's the only one of the four Gospels that doesn't have an origin story for Jesus. In Luke and in Matthew, you have genealogies, and in John, you have this wild origin story. It's like a DC or Marvel comic you know, like credits sequence, it's crazy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. <laughs> like, it's just like a wild trip of like, I feel like the early Christians were like, okay, John, okay, <laughs> we'll unpack that later. Anyways, the point is that Matthew and Luke and John established Jesus' authority from the get-go. What they want to tell you and provide the reader with 
is this sense of comfort that this guy who we're about to hear about deserves your attention. And it really lays the groundwork for the authority of Jesus throughout the Gospels. But Mark doesn't. Mark jumps straight in with the story of John the Baptist. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of John the Baptist, but if you were raised in church like me, you all know that this guy is intense, he is loud, he is confrontational, he's abrasive, his message is one note, he makes terrible fashion choices and food choices, and his head ends up on a plate. That's the first story in Mark, and this is not a feel-good story for whoever is reading this letter. Yet, starting out this way sets the tone for an urgent gospel. One of the things I mean by that is the use of the word immediately. Have you guys ever noticed that word in the book of Mark, immediately? Okay, Mark 1.10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Mark 1.12, the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Mark 1.18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mark 1.20, and immediately he called them. Mark 1.21, and they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Mark 1.23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Mark 1.29, and immediately he left the synagogue. Mark 1.30, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Mark 1.42, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean and that is chapter one of Mark. (laughs) It's an action-packed gospel. Another fascinating thing about the book of Mark is that some of the earliest manuscripts don't contain the last 12 verses in the book. Here's why that's troubling. The last 12 verses contain confirmations of the resurrection of Jesus. Without those 12 verses, the Christians receiving this gospel, which, by the way, was the first gospel written, so they weren't cross-referencing anything else, they have no follow-up sightings to Jesus. They have no final messages from Jesus, no great commission telling them what to do with the rest of their lives, and they have no ascension of Jesus to sit on the right hand of God. This isn't on the screen, but let me just read you that part to get a feel for it and just see what you notice here. Mark 16, 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And scene. The Christians who get this truncated book of Mark have an empty tomb and an angel sitting on top of it and a lot of unanswered questions. It is hard for us, 
who have the whole Bible to cross-reference all of these different scriptures and all of these different stories. It's hard for us to understand what that might feel like in the time, but if this book is a standalone scroll on your scroll shelf in your first century shelf, the book of Mark is urgent, and its ending is uncertain, and it's unnerving. Yes, it ends with the resurrection, but it's like, trust me, it happened. In fact, if we're going by the truncated manuscript, the book ends in fear and with the word afraid. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It ends with the Jewish Jesus followers, silenced and full of fear. Now, if you get the extended cut or the director's cut of Mark, there is a huge sigh of relief in those last 12 verses. But if you aren't afforded the opportunity to read them, the ending of the book, like the whole pace of Mark, is intense. So as I'm studying for this sermon, the question that I'm dying to ask as I'm looking through this is why is it so dark and why this sense of urgency? So to answer that question, I dug into the story of the Messianic Jews during the time. So if you'll indulge the history nerd in me, I'd like to tell you about it. If you ask Dan Kava to preach, you'll hear about movies. If you ask me to preach, we're talking about history. Now, ancient history is not my forte, so I don't know that I've got everything perfectly, but this is the best that I can suss out from the stuff that I've read, and we can have all the seminarians correct everything later. But here's what I found. When Nero was emperor, a fire burned much of Rome. These rumors started to spread throughout the city that Nero himself had set the fire because he wanted to rebuild part of the city in this old architectural style that he was into. And he was afraid he couldn't get it passed, so if he set a fire and it burned down, well, we gotta build something, so might as well do it my way, right? So when Nero found out that the rumors were about him, he needed a scapegoat. So he picked the Jews. He was like, hey, they did it. And I could prove it to you because their part of the city didn't burn. And the Jews were like, yeah, well, A, you don't like us. And B, you've exiled us a bunch of times. So yeah, we're on the outskirts of the city across the river. So yeah, we didn't burn. But Nero wasn't interested in the reasoning. Science was not factored into his decision making at the time. So he began to tyrannize the folks living in the Jewish quarter. And the Jews were rightfully terrified. So in an attempt to save some of the Jews, some one or some small group of Jews went to Nero and said, yeah, okay, you caught us, we did it. But it wasn't us Jews, it was these fringe Jews over here called the Messianic Jews. So now the scapegoats had scapegoats and it was Bedlam. The Messianic Jews were arrested in droves, and because they weren't considered Roman citizens, they were exempted from the protocol of an appeal of arrest, and they were also exempted from the practice of a quick execution. They suffered immensely. Roman guards would go around from house to house and knock on doors and ask if anyone in the house was a Messianic Jew, and if the answer was yes, that whole family was rounded up, and tortured and executed. 
If the answer was no, they had to name somebody who was a Messianic Jew in order to save their own family. Neighbor was turning on neighbor, and it was a time of paranoia and fear. This is an apocalyptic time where the darkness was closing in and the Jesus followers of the first century. These are the people reading the Gospel of Mark, which has no time for an origin story. These are the people reading the Immediately's. These are the people who are reading the story of blind Bartimaeus. So with this lens, let's go back and read those verses again. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The followers of Christ who were in this great time of darkness were listening to the story about a blind man named Bartimaeus who was literally living in darkness he was literally living on the fringes of society with no hope of anything changing. Jesus had already been in that city, and he was leaving. And on his way out, Jesus passes by. Can you feel why this story might be important to that group of first century Jews who were suffering? I love the story of Bartimaeus. Here's this guy who's blind, and we have no origin story for Bartimaeus and no conclusion. We don't know what happens to him. Mark doesn't tell us. In that way, Bartimaeus' story mirrors the whole book of Mark. All we know is that he cries out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he throws off his cloak in a mob of people, and he runs to Jesus. And if you're blind in a mob of people, and you throw off your cloak, your one comfort the one thing that keeps you warm, you better get healed because you're not finding that thing again. And your future is even colder than your past and your present. The story of Bartimaeus is profound. He's crying out for Jesus because he's heard the rumors. Jesus has been wandering through the land healing tons of people raising dead girls, healing the deaf and mute, healing those crazed with either demons or some kind of epilepsy or mental illness. Bartimaeus has even heard rumors of him healing another blind man. I wonder if he knew that Jesus would heal him. Or if he didn't know, he was willing to throw all of his chips in the middle of the table for one last shot at being healed. And what Bartimaeus doesn't know is that this is his last shot. Because the healing of blind Bartimaeus is the last recorded healing in the book of Mark before Jesus is arrested. In the last verse of our mini-story, Jesus tells Bartimaeus, go your way. But Bartimaeus says, absolutely not. 
and follows Jesus instead. This means that there's no bow on the end of the story of blind Bartimaeus. Because Jesus gives Bartimaeus his sight only for Bartimaeus to follow Jesus and watch the son of David, the son of God, the merciful sight giver, die a death where he now feels in the dark. He is now a fringe Jew. He is now made a scapegoat. Mark's Jesus dies an awfully dark death. Not only is the cross a terrible way to die, but in Jesus' last breath, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when I hear this, I hear deep doubt and soul-crushing anxiety. The question is not uncertainty. Uncertainty would sound like, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? This Jesus who in John 1.10 says, I and the Father are one, he feels like he loses that bond with the Father in his final breath. He doesn't ask if God is forsaken. He asks why. I know that these stories are heavy, and I don't tell them to you to bum you out, but I tell them to you because I wonder if some of you here today are already in darkness where you are desperate for God to find you. And I wonder if some of you here today have been living on the outskirts of hope for a long time, feeling forsaken by God. This week our country lost two African-American brothers and sisters and 11 Jewish brothers and sisters who are also made scapegoats of other people's hatred. And two more communities have been plunged into grief. That's why this story is important. That's why knowing and understanding the darkness is important. So to conclude our story of Bartimaeus, Jesus turns when he hears Bartimaeus' cry for mercy, and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? I love this because Jesus doesn't just assume Bartimaeus' need. He doesn't just heal him and move on. He doesn't just assume that, of course, a blind man wants sight. What he does first is he sees Bartimaeus. And by asking him this simple question, Jesus gives Bartimaeus dignity and the freedom to ask for what he really wants. He not only pulls Bartimaeus out of darkness, but he pulls him out of despair. He's so present, the Savior. I know this isn't the same as blindness or persecution, but after I had Dash, my firstborn, I had a really hard time. He was colicky. He didn't sleep much, which meant I didn't sleep much. I didn't feel all the feelings that I thought I was supposed to feel. As a new mom, feeding him was a nightmare. God. And then this thing started to happen in me where I just couldn't feel happiness anymore. And I couldn't feel feelings. <laughs> you know, like those times of darkness where you're like, I think I'm still a human, right? This humans have feelings, right? 
And I was in a deep postpartum depression, and I had no idea. So one day I was home alone, and Dash started crying again for the trillionth time. And I couldn't take it anymore, and I ran out of my house. And I literally screamed at the heavens, you could help me, but you won't. You could send someone to help me, but you won't. I am alone, and you're going to do nothing about it. And he didn't. He said nothing, and he did nothing. And I walked back into the house. Through grace and through time, things began to shift, but so slowly. I found my way into a new rhythm, but it wasn't miraculous. And even while it was happening, I just still felt so alone. And I wonder if some of you here today have recently been literally shouting like a crazy person at the heavens, like I did, (laughs) or maybe in your heart, shouting at the heavens. I wonder if you've lost or feel like you're losing a relationship, a marriage, a friendship, a career, or maybe even your faith. I wonder if some of you haven't gotten to the last 12 verses of an important chapter in your life. And you're hoping they're going to be good news. I want to say to you today that you are not alone. You may feel in the dark, and I don't know when that's going to change for you. But what I do know is you don't have to sit in the dark alone. Jesus knows darkness better than any of us. And I believe Jesus is with you. But if, like me, during a dark depression, this is not one of those days or weeks or years where you feel his presence, then let me be a friend who sits with you in the darkness. Find someone here in this room who will sit with you in the darkness. Let this church be a church who sits with you in the darkness. I think it's faithful to believe for a miracle and also to mourn. It's a sacred space where honesty and hope dwell together. Will the musicians please come up to the front? And our prayer team and our communion workers can get ready. In a moment, we're all going to come to the table together and take part in remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. As you come, listen for Jesus asking you, what do you want me to do for you? And whether your heart responds in hope or whether your response is, why have you forsaken me? I just want to say to you that both are faithful responses. Jesus knows those moments. He is present in those moments. He is present in this moment. And as you come to the table, if you would like someone to pray for you, we have some really wonderful friends on either side of the stage here who will stand with you in the darkness as you wait for the light to come. Let's say the liturgy together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, 
you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.